Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Now, um, just, just out of idle curiosity on my part, um, how many of you come, have come from baptistic backgrounds? Could I see your hands? How many of you didn't come from baptistic backgrounds? <laughs> um, um, those of you who have come from baptistic backgrounds, does this text ring a bell? It should. I mean, it, um, it should be somewhat familiar to you. Uh, because in the, um, in the discussion of baptism, the sacrament of baptism, this is considered the classicus locus, the classic text. This is the text um, to which appeal is made for the, the whole idea of uh, or at least so often uh, of immersionistic baptism. Now, um, having said that, um, that is not something that I, I want to spend much of our time on, but there is going to have to be some, uh, some wrestling with that idea, and, and I hope you'll understand in a minute. But let me remind you that what Paul is trying to deal with um, is this whole idea about what now should be characteristic of those who have been justified by faith. And he starts off with verse 1 by saying, uh, there are those who would ask this question, then should I go ahead and sin some more because I'm justified? And he says, oh, now that, that's just an impossible thought. How could anybody have such a, a, a horrible thought uh, who has died to sin? And so, um, last week we looked at the whole idea of our identity with Christ, and because of our identity with Christ, we are safe. We are secure. And I talked about the Emancipation Proclamation, about those who, who uh, though legally were set free, uh, experientially uh, stayed in slavery because they did not fully appreciate and appropriate that which was legally and positionally theirs. Um, gang, you can be a slave in your feelings when actually, with respect to your position, uh, you are, have been um, completely emancipated. And that's what I see happening in so many evangelical, evangelicals today, not fully enjoying what all is theirs. Now, and what I've tried to do is say, what does Paul mean by this clause, dead to sin? Um, and I've tried to point out that it has to do with the position that you have been transferred from a reign of, uh, reign of death to the reign of grace, etc. Now, um, in verse 3, Paul begins now to explain, uh, and will do so to the end of verse 14, I think it's verse 14, uh, end of verse 11, no, 14. He is going to begin to explain this fundamental proposition. And that fundamental proposition being 
we who died to sin. Okay, but Paul, how is it that we are to view this we have died to sin? How did that take place? The answer to that question, ladies and gentlemen, is because we are found in union with Christ. All right? Now, for the sake of developing that idea, we're going to have to set that aside to next week. Because this text is, um, is, is, the, is the cause of some measure of misunderstanding, and because it is in some measure misunderstood, the whole idea of one's union with Christ is not fully enjoyed and appreciated and understood. Because, ladies and gentlemen, when you read the word baptized into Christ Jesus, particularly in the South, um, when you read that idea of baptized into Christ Jesus, certain things begin to unfold in your minds. And because they do, you miss the main point of the text. The controversy that surrounds the word baptized causes us to miss the real point. Because the real point is having to do with one's union with Christ. How did how am how is it that I am dead to sin? Well, the answer to that is I am in union with Christ. But again, because this text uh, has the idea of baptism in it and because it has become the classicus locus in the debate on baptism, that has become the focus of the text, as opposed to what I consider to be the very heart of the text, and the heart of the text has to do with our union with Christ. But that is buried under all of the other discussion about baptism. And on and on and on and on and on and on. Now, I will say this to you guys. When you find people who really know what they're talking about in the, in the debate between, uh, over baptism, and you know that, that good Christians fall on both sides of that issue. When you, when you hear the guys who really understand the issues, they don't appeal to this text. They don't use this text in their argument. Because, ladies and gentlemen, this is what is said, and this is what is pretty much widely understood among those who really know the, knows the issues. Know the issues. It is said like this: there is not a drop of water in this text. That is, this text is completely dry. And by that, their meaning, this text has nothing to do with the sacrament of baptism. It has to do with one's union with Christ. And that's what we're going to have to get to. But we're, what I want to do tonight is clear away some of the 
the, um, the baggage that prevents us from enjoying what really is the mind and, and really is the heart and soul of the text. That being, as I said, one's union with Christ. Now, guys, <clears throat> notice how verse 3 opens up. Or do you not know? Um, it's, it's as if Paul is somewhat surprised that he's got to go back and remind his audience of the truth that he's about to, um, he's about to explain. They ought to know this. They ought to know how it is that they're dead to sin. But they had forgotten it, apparently, and Paul is about to remind them. Um, this idea of being in union with Christ is something that ought to be as well understood as the crucifixion of Christ. But it is not. And part of the reason that it's not well understood uh, and much talked about, in fact, it's, it's, it's really interesting, some of the, the glorious doctrines of the New Testament that we know so little about. Adoption. How much do you know about adoption? How much do you know about our union with Christ? Now, guys, I'm saying that one of the most pastorally helpful concepts in the New Testament is our union with Christ. But the very text that teaches it, actually, that's not wholly true, because it was also taught over here in in Romans chapter 5. But the very text that teaches our union with Christ has become a controversial text about the sacrament of baptism. And I'm saying, ladies and gentlemen, that has completely missed the point. And so what we're going to do is clear away the ideas that misdirect our focus on the real issues of this text. Are you with me thus far? (laughs) Because um, my, my friend Jimmy Latimer is right, everybody in Memphis is a Baptist. You are either a Presbyterian Baptist or a Roman Catholic Baptist or a Lutheran Baptist or a Methodist Baptist, but you're a Baptist. Everybody's a Baptist. And because that's uh, your, the, the, the kind of the, the milieu of the South and the Bible Belt, the real import and the real beauty of this text is missed. So what I'm going to try to do is clean up some of those misconceptions that have been brought into the text so that next week we can look at the idea of one's union with Christ and how gloriously beneficial it is to understand one's union with Christ. How am I dead to sin? Because I am in union with Christ. But that will have to be saved till next week. What I want to do tonight is try to clean up some stuff, as I've already said, about this, um, this text when it comes to the sacrament, which really has nothing to do with this text. Alright? Now, there's three points that I want to make tonight concerning some, some ideas that you have picked up either by process of osmosis or having been taught it outright. First of all, 
the idea, um, hold on here. I will forget that. Um, forget that. Um, I should have known that Orange would never let me down. <laughs> now, that is a very key Greek word. Uh, can you take a stab at it? It's pretty simple. Bantenzo. There it is. That's the term, of course, uh, from which we get our English word, baptism, baptist, etc., etc. Bantenzo. Now, ladies and gentlemen, in the world of theological debate, there are numerous what we call systematic theologies written that are available to you. That is, different men have written systematic theologies. Um, uh, Charles Hodge has written a systematic theology. Um, uh, Wayne Gruden has written a, a systematic theology. Um, uh, Burkhoff has written a systematic theology. There is another gentleman whose name is A.H. Strong who has written a systematic theology, and it is a very good work. It is a very good work. It is, it is, he is a, a committed, uh, I, I hate to say Southern Baptist, but he is a Baptist. Um, a Reformed Baptist, if you know what that means. It is a very good work. But in that work that has been around, gosh, I think 100 years, A.H. Strong suggests that the word baptizo, that's an equal sign. The word baptizo is always to be translated with that English word. That the word baptizo means immersion. So if you, if you come to the word um, elpis, well, that's a word that means faith. Well, the word baptizo means immersion. And so every time you find the word baptizo, you should substitute the English word immersion. Now, gang, the first thing that I've got to clear up is how absolutely impossible is such a notion. Etymologically and biblically. So I want you to take your little Bibles and I want you to thumb around with me for a minute or two. And I want you to... Uh, let's go to the book of Hebrews first, because there's, uh, there's one over there. Uh, Hebrews chapter 9. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter... And we've got to go kind of fast here. We've got three points to make. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 10. Um, I'm just going to read it. Concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings. Now... If you've got a Bible like mine, look at your, look at your uh, uh, margin off to the left, and you will find one English word over there. Well, in, in, in mine, it's got baptisms. Because, ladies and gentlemen, the word that is translated washings is the word baptizo. And it is translated washings. By the way, it is translated that way in Mark chapter 7. Um, 
Mark chapter 7, a great statement. Of, I love Mark 7. But in uh, Mark 7, verse 5, um, uh, let's see, 4 and 5. Let's, yes, verse 4. Um, when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they baptizo, unless they wash. Um, it's in verse 5. It's in the negative uh, in terms of unwashed hands. How about this one? Look at Matthew chapter 20, uh, verse 22 with me. Or you might not want to change this. Just write it down. Matthew 20, verse 22 says, But Jesus answered and said, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? Now, ladies and gentlemen, take this formula and plug it right in that verse. And see if it works. Uh, plug it into uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 10. Plug it into Mark chapter 7, verses 4 and 5. Plug the word immersion in there. Are you, is, and Jesus is saying, are you able to be immersed with the immersion with which I'm to be immersed? Um, it, it, it's, it doesn't make, it doesn't allow that, ladies and gentlemen. Um, there are other statements. Uh, baptized into Moses. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 2. Can you say that men were immersed into Moses? No, ladies and gentlemen. You cannot. So, uh, my point is, the word baptizo, and very interestingly, the translators of the New King James Bible, when they come to the word, they very frequently translate the word wash or washings. Um, so, at least all of the translators of this Bible, and probably several of yours, will not use the word immersion as an equivalent of the word baptizo. Now, so, when you come over here to Romans chapter 6, and you find the word baptize, the issue, at least for Mr. Strong, is that we are talking about immersion, and immediately we're off track. Because that's not the point of the verse. But if baptizo means immersion, then you're off center as you try to deal with Romans chapter 6, verse 3. Alright? That's my first point. My second point. Tell me, ladies and gentlemen, how was Jesus baptized? Come on, you know, sit out there and be bold. How was Jesus baptized? He was immersed. He was immersed. Where'd you learn that? <laughs> She's sitting in the movies. That's, that's exactly. Well, no, no, there are other places where people learn it. Um, they learn it in pictorial battles like this one. Because um, uh, the picture here, hold it if I can find it for you. Um, is a picture of Jesus being baptized. And very interestingly, I found... Here, here's the picture. And I found this in another pictorial Bible in our bookstore where Jesus is being immersed. Now, every one of you um, have a notion... I shouldn't say every one of you. Maybe not, not every one of you. Maybe... Let me just say the majority of you have the, have the notion that Jesus... that this happened to Him. I want to ask you, where did you get that? 
because I'll guarantee you, you did not get it from the New Testament, which is a reasonable source of authority. Would you not agree? I'll tell you what let's do. Let's go to Matthew chapter 5, where it is mentioned, and see if we can find how Jesus was baptized. Matthew chapter 3. What did I say? I'm sorry. Matthew chapter 3. For, for excusez-moi. Uh, all right. Oh, he's in the Jordan. That's, that's fine. That doesn't say immersion. Um, look at the text. All right, now, here, I, I'm, uh, you're going to have to stay with me now. Uh, um, then Jesus came, I'm in verse 13, came to Galilee to John, uh, John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried, and of course, a strong would put immersion in there. Um, and John tried to stop it. Uh, then verse 15. But Jesus said, uh, you know, permit it now, etc. Now here we go. Verse 16. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. Now that's it. That's all that the New Testament states. That's it. Now, here, here's my point. Let me, let's imagine for a moment that I am John the Baptist. And this top bullheaded guy is Jesus. Oh, that's, that's, <laughs> that's sacrilege at its worst. Um, but let's say that uh, I am right now standing on the riverbank of the River Jordan. Okay? I'm on dry land over here. Are you with me? But right out there is the River Jordan. There's the River Jordan right out there. And I'm standing on dry land, and I'm, I'm going to baptize Jesus. So Jesus and I walk down into the water ankle deep. Hold on, hold on. We walk down into the water ankle deep. And I bend over, I scoop water in my hand, and I pour it on his head. After that is completed, Jesus and I immediately come up out of the water. Have I not, by describing it in that way, satisfied the words of that text? You know what I'm talking Now, how was Jesus baptized? I don't know. Um, I'll tell you, let's say he was immersed. That'd be fine with me. I don't give a hoot how he was baptized. But I'm telling you, the New Testament doesn't tell you how. You learned it at the movies. Or you learned it in pictorial representations of his baptism. So, my point is, if you go back to Romans chapter 6, um, and you see all this mentioned in verse 3 about being buried with him in baptism, if the thing that immediately pops into your mind is immersion, I say to you, you imported that into the text. That's all I'm saying. I don't know how he was baptized. It doesn't matter to me how he was baptized. Very frankly, I think you got a pretty good argument. That is, that he was baptized by immersion. I'm simply saying, nobody, 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 nobody can say, Jesus was immersed, thus saith the Lord. Nobody can say that. Was he immersed? Okay, fine. But don't appeal to the Scriptures for that. You imported that. 
But for heaven's sakes, when it comes to Romans chapter 6, verse 3, don't do that. Because you will miss the beauty of our union with Christ. That's what I'm trying to avoid, ladies and gentlemen. I'm not trying to make a case one way or the other for baptism. I don't give a hoot. If I gave a hoot, we would not be putting in a baptismal. But I don't give a hoot. I'm simply saying there is something rich and vast and deep and beautiful in Romans chapter 6, verse 3. I do not want you to miss it because you're caught up with foolishness that came from the movies. Now, there's one other issue. That was my second issue. Um, my, my second point. Or my third point. Wait a second. Um, yes. Guys, this is another thing that absolutely, absolutely staggers my imagination. Because um, Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, have become this controversial couplet of verses over the sacrament of baptism. And, and I'm telling you, I think it is so unfortunate that it has, because as I've said I have a dozen times already, that we're going to miss out on the, the real richness, which is union with Christ, which we'll get to next week. But I, I'm telling you, I, I want to say to folks, wait a minute, wait a minute. By, by the way, by the way, let, let, me, let me pause just to say this real quick. Once I'm finished tonight, the, the debate between modes of baptism will go on. I'm not trying to solve that. I'm not trying to get you to come to a position on that. That has nothing to do with what I'm trying to do. So, if you want to go debate whether you pour or whether you immerse, go right ahead. I'm simply trying to save Romans 6, 3, and 4 for our benefit and for our, our enjoyment as we dive into the beauty of our union with Christ Jesus. Now, that's what I'm trying to do, is just save it from the controversy that it has engendered, which I, and I want to say, how in the world did this happen? How did it become the classicus locus over the mode of baptism? When it's a dry text. Very frankly, it has nothing to do with the sacrament. Nothing whatsoever to do with the sacrament. And we'll get that next week. But, um... Here's my third point. Um, who baptized Jesus? We got that one right. <laughs> we know that one. That one is very clearly stated. John the Baptist baptized Jesus. Amen. Right there in the Bible. Now, ladies and gentlemen, tell me, where from whom, from what source, did John the Baptist learn about baptism? Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4? Tell me why that is absolutely, utterly, completely, and totally impossible. When did, you, when did John the Baptist baptize Jesus? Around 35 A.D. No, B.C. 
Yeah. Well, that wouldn't be right. Yeah, that's right. That's it's got to be A.D., I guess. I get so confused. How, how is it that you can say that Jesus was born at 4 B.C.? Figure that one out. And, and that's what the scholarship says. You know, he was born at 4 B.C. What do you mean 4 B.C.? 4 before Jesus. <laughs> I was born before Jesus four years. <laughs> and I'm Jesus. I, I don't know. But anyway, you got the picture. I think it has to be A.D. I think it has to be 35 A.D. All right? Yes. That's when he was baptized. But he wasn't dead yet. You go figure. All right, but here's the point. Who wrote the book of Romans? Paul. Give me a reasonable date for the writing of the book of Romans. Excellent guess. 78 AD. Something like that. My point is, ladies and gentlemen, the book was written 35 years after the event took place. John the Baptist, by no means, appealed to Romans 6, 3, and 4 to learn of his views of baptism. So, I repeat my question. From whence cometh John the Baptist's understanding of baptism, the sacrament? That's a good guess. Who, who, what? The Old Testament, ladies and gentlemen. Do you want to, let me just show you why I think that's so true. Turn to the book of um, uh, Hebrews, chapter 6. Got to hurry. If I could ever find Hebrews. Hebrews, chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go, by the way, hold on. The book of Hebrews is written by whom? We don't know. <laughs> we don't know who wrote it. Um, good guesses have come. Paul has been attributed with it, but you know the language is so unpauline. Uh, Apollos is a decent guess, but we do know to whom the book was written. Who was it written to? What do you mean Hebrews? Jews. It was written to Jewish Christians, and then the writer of this book writes to Jewish Christians, therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, the author of the book of Hebrews, who is writing to Jews, is telling them to get apart from, separate themselves from, the whole notions of their baptisms. Notice it's in the plural. And if you will go back to Mark chapter 7, where Jesus is dealing with the Pharisees, and he talks about how they baptizo, same Greek word found here as is found in Mark chapter 7, as they baptizo, remember what he says? Cups and couches. My point is, ladies and gentlemen, the Old Testament was full of baptizos. It was full of ceremonial cleansings called baptisms. John the Baptist learned baptism because of his knowledge of Old Testament mandate. Now, I will say this about the sacrament. 
This is about all I've said tonight about the fact when that's not true. But whatever understanding you have of baptism, whatever one you pick, make sure that it has Old Testament roots to it. The one that John the Baptist performed on Jesus is one that had Old Testament roots to it. And if you like so many of our Baptist brethren say they want to do to follow Jesus in baptism, then for heaven's sakes, follow Jesus in baptism. I applaud you. But whatever understanding you choose, make sure you choose one that has an Old Testament root to it, just as did John the Baptist's. Now, gang, all I'm saying is, John the Baptist did not go study Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, to understand what he needed to do about baptism. Because, ladies and gentlemen, Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4 have nothing whatsoever to do with the sacrament of baptism. It has to do with the baptism of the Holy Spirit that effects our union with Jesus Christ. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is something that is too precious, too dear, too vital, too important to get buried under some controversy over what your views of the sacrament may happen to be or not to be. Because, ladies and gentlemen, forget it. Because let's go back to the text having swept away some of this business and feast our eyes on that which Paul has in view that ultimately joins us, brings us into union with Christ. And by so doing, he can then say, I am with Christ. And everything that has happened to Him has happened to me because I am joined to Him via the baptism of the Holy Ghost. That, ladies and gentlemen, is crucial for our enjoyment as believers when it comes to our wrestling with the flesh. Hopefully, with that aside, we'll be able to come back to it next week and enjoy the great profundity of it. Let's quit. Our Father, I do pray that you will not allow the... the controversies that swirl in the Christian church to cause us to miss this wonderful truth concerning our union with Christ. That we are indeed in Christ and Christ is in us. That all that He has accomplished, we have accomplished. Because we are in Him. And because we are, 
there need be never again the concern and the fear that we may one day ultimately be lost. Nothing will make your people more confident, O God, than a grasp of our union with your Son. Grant us eyes to see and ears to hear so that our souls might flourish. Forgive us, O God, that we quibble over foolishness when the profound is awaiting us. Might we taste and see by the power of the Holy Spirit how beautiful is your salvation. We pray, as always, in Jesus' name. Amen. Good night.